But if you could open up your Bibles to Exodus 17, that would be great. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus for a little while now. We've been hearing of God's miraculous provision in miraculous places in all sorts of miraculous ways. And today we're up to the first portion of chapter 17, Water from the Rock. We're looking at Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through to 7. If you know the story or if you've been journeying with us here at Church in the Marketplace in recent times, you'll know that Exodus is a story about how God liberates. It's a story about how God liberates from all that enslaves us, from all that would seek to destroy us. Exodus is a story about how God miraculously provides for us, even in the harshest of places, even in the darkest of times. If you know the story, you'll know that Israel has been enslaved down in Egypt for some 400 years, and God has miraculously saved Moses, miraculously raised him up to be somewhat of a reluctant hero. He's, uh, he's killed a man and has fled for his life. He's now 80 years old. God has miraculously appeared to him in the burning bush saying, hey, let's go get our people. Let's go set my people free. Go and tell uh, the boss, Pharaoh, the king, to let my people go. He has miraculously uh, sent 10 destructive, incredibly uh, destructive plagues on, on the land of, of Egypt. He has miraculously brought his people out uh, through the Red Sea, miraculously parted the Red Sea and brought his people out into freedom. He's miraculously been guiding his people ever since via a pillar of, of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He has miraculously provided for them out in the wilderness. He's miraculously fed them with manna from heaven, a bread-like substance covering the desert floor each morning, providing just what they needed every day and miraculously providing quail for them to cover the campsite at night. God has been good. He has provided for them time and time and time again. And now God has, has led them out to a dry place. They're now at a place called Rephidim and there is a problem. There is no water. So let's pick up uh, the passage at uh, Exodus chapter 17 uh, through uh, verses 1 to 7. This is a test. This is a time of trial. This is a time of testing in the wilderness for God's people. So let's see how they go in this time of testing and trial, given the fact that God has miraculously provided for them time and time and time again. Bearing in mind, these events only occur some six weeks after the Exodus. This is not ancient history. They've just witnessed some of the most amazing miracles in all of human history before or since, but they now come to a hard spot, a place uh, with, with no water, a, a place called Rephidim. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So... They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? <laughs> right out to the Lord. 
What am I going to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called that place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Yeah, loving Lord, this is a, a testing passage. It reflects back on us. How would we stand up in such a time? How would we, how would our faithfulness go, Father? Father, we pray that you might help us to learn from this passage. We pray that you might help us to apply it in our lives, that we wouldn't be simply hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard and all the people said. Amen. The first thing I want you to see here is that these people aren't here by accident. If you've got it open in front of you, still see verse 1 says that God had led them to this place. They've been led by God. Remember, God has been leading them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, whether or not that is still in operation at this point or whether he's simply been guiding them by divine revelation, we don't know. But what the text is very clear about is they're not just sort of aimlessly wandering about the wilderness and stumbled, happened happened to get themselves into a tough spot. No, no. The text is very clear. God has brought them here. God has brought them to this dry place. God has brought them to this time of testing, to this this time of, of, of trial. So this is the first little point of application and learning, I think. As a follower of Jesus, this is our life. We are led by God. You are not where you are by accident. God God has gone ahead of you. The scripture is full of passages that say, this doesn't just happen by random. Ephesians chapter 1, God makes everything work out according to his plan. Or in Job, of course, Job had to deal with some tough stuff, didn't he? If you know his story, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord be praised. What an amazing thing to say. Job could praise God when he gives and when he takes away. The psalmist in Psalm 115 says, our God is in heaven and he does what pleases him. And Proverbs chapter 20 verse 24 says, a person's steps are directed by the Lord. Our steps are directed by God. You are not where you are by accident. God has gone ahead of you. He knows what it is that you're going through. He has a plan for you. So at this point here in our passage, the entire nation of Israel, uh, probably a couple of million people, I mean, we have 600,000 men, women, and children beside all their livestock that are a dry place with, with no water. So it's understandable that this is a, a tough spot. It's understandable. As far as they can see, it's desolate. This is fairly dry, dry land. So from a human standpoint, there's not a lot of hope. It's hard to see how from a human perspective, how they're going to get out of this one. But remember 
of course, what they had just seen over the past six weeks. So I want to ask you this morning, maybe you're in a dry spot. Maybe you're feeling as though God has led you to a desert place. Maybe you feel as though you've been led to a parched land. Perhaps you're in a bit of a a dry, barren spot in your life at the moment. If, If that's you, maybe just lean in to see what God's trying to see here. Maybe hear that God has a plan for you. He hasn't led you here by accident. In the Israelites' case, of course, common story, if you know their story, the moaning and the groaning starts up. It says they start quarreling with, with Moses. Now, what I want you to know, what I found interesting, what I learnt about studying this passage is that this, the, the Hebrew for, for quarreling here is more than just having a whinge. Right? We've heard they've already been moaning and groaning and bitching. Like that, but this isn't new for these white people. But here they're quarreling. So this word quarreling actually has a legal edge about it. They're bringing a charge against Moses. They're summoning before the bar of justice. They're making an allegation against Moses here. It's quite a serious allegation. So I want you to see this is not just having a bitch and a moan. No, no, they're actually alleging something pretty serious against Moses. Moses, of course, puts it back on them. Uh, he says, why, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you having... Why are you bitching against me? It's, it's actually God that you have the problem with. But they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't hear any of it. Moses tried to say, don't blame me. But they wouldn't hear any of it. And, and, and they continue to, to moan and to groan. And, and they say, why have you brought us out here, out into this place, uh, to, for us to die of thirst and our children and our livestock. This is a pretty serious allegation because really what they're saying is that not only is God, you know, really he's made the wrong decision or that he's, he's you know, he's not really able or, or, or competent to save them. They're actually kind of saying when you think about it that God doesn't intend to save them. They're saying that God really doesn't even, doesn't even want to save them. It's a pretty rough allegation. It's a pretty serious allegation. Even after everything they've seen and heard to this point, after all the miraculous ways that God has already provided for them, they're still not trusting in God's goodness. Time and time and time again throughout Scripture, we're only after Exodus, already we've seen a pattern of God providing, God really crying out from heaven to his people, to you and me, trust me. Trust me, even when you can't see a solution, even when things look harsh, trust me. Sadly, uh, these people did it. So in verse 4, Moses cries out, he says, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? You can hear the frustration in his voice. After everything they've been through, they're still coming and, and making these pretty solid allegations against him and indeed ultimately against God. You're going, what are you going to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Again, that legal edge here, right? They're ready to stone him for some crime. They're actually alleging that he's kind of guilty of manslaughter before the fact. That's really what they're saying here. So Moses, Moses himself cries out to God, says, what are we going to do with these whingers, with these moaners and groaners, with these accusers that are before me? And then I love God's response. God's response in verses 5 
through to 7. I, God, now this is the Chapman translation, a very loose translation. God essentially says, take a chill pill, Moses. He says, chill out. He says, I got this. Moses, I got this. It's okay. I'm in control. I'm in charge. I direct your steps. I know what's happening. And he, in fact, tells Moses simply to get on with it, doesn't he? He says, go. He says, Moses, don't stop. Don't let the whinges stop you. Don't let circumstances stop you. Don't let the turkeys get you down. Don't let the complainers stop you. There's always going to be people ready to complain. Nothing in this life is ever really achieved without overcoming some sort of opposition, is it? God is telling Moses here, you know what? Don't let all of this stop you. Just keep going. Keep going on the path that I have set you on. Don't let opposition stop you. Don't let circumstances stop you. Go. He tells him, he tells him, it's right, well, effectively, if these people want a trial, then I'm going to give them a trial, God says. God says, Moses, take the staff with you. The staff we've had here throughout our, our uh, journey that Dave Busso knocked up for us, takes this, Moses to take this staff. This is the staff that has some pretty rock and roll power. He's already struck the Nile with it, turned it to blood. God is saying here, the same staff with the same power, same God, same grace. I'm now going to get water from the stone. The same rod that parted the Red Sea. The staff, by the way, and if you were watching the coronation last night, you would have seen the king holding a scepter. It's a symbol of authority. Back in the day, the rod or the staff would be used to mete out justice. You would actually strike the, the, the guilty one, the evildoers, with the rod. To have a rod or a staff or a scepter is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of power and the ability uh, to mete out justice. So, so rather than having Moses on trial, God tells Moses to take with him his staff as a symbol of authority. Friends, Moses isn't on trial. Moses is, in fact, the judge. God tells Moses to take the elders with him as witnesses. These are to be the jury. We are setting up a, a, a trial here. So that is, that is the language. This is what is... This is what is going on here at this point. And then to complete the picture, the most amazing aspect of this story of all, God says, I will go before you. This language of standing before someone is the language of an inferior standing before a superior. God is saying, I will go before you. I will be the one in the dock. God places himself in the dock. God places himself on the gallows. God is saying, I'll give you a trial, but Moses, you're the judge. I will be the one who will be standing on the rock. Then I've uses standing, uh, with standing by the rock. The other translations say God was standing on the rock. God is standing on the rock. God is, is saying, strike me, smite me. This is incredible stuff. I mean, this is not how you would expect a God to act. I mean, can you imagine if you're God? If I were God at this point, I'd be pretty fed up with my people, like Moses certainly was. After everything they've seen and experienced, they're still moaning. You would expect God to have enough done with these people. You'd expect him to smite the people, throw down some lightning bolts and leave them to their own devices. But no, that is, praise God, not the God that we worship. God himself stands in the dock. God himself takes the blow of justice upon 
himself. When Moses cries out, what are we going to do with these people? God replies, we're going to give them what they need. When Moses cries out, what am I going to do with these people? God says, you know what, we're going to provide for their needs. We're going to keep on loving them. We're going to keep on serving them in, in miraculous ways. God himself comes down and takes the blow upon himself. In this story, yes, but of course, ultimately, at the cross of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we know that Jesus himself took the blows upon himself. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, who said, I thirst, of course, and who said, all you are thirsty, come to me. And rivers of living water will flow. God himself is standing before them at the rock. This is amazingly gracious stuff. What's amazing is that God's patience hasn't run out. Apart from the amazing miracle of water gushing from the top of a rock, the last place, by the way, you'd expect it to flow from in the desert, what is truly amazing about this story is God's graciousness, that God hasn't given up on his people. This is amazing, life-giving grace from the God who made the cosmos. It was true back 3,500 years ago at this moment, and it's true still today. God says, when you strike the rock, I'll be standing on the rock. He's trying to tell the people, you think you need water? Yes, I know what you need, but you know what you really need? You need me, is what God is, is trying to tell these people. He's screaming at them, trust me. Put your trust in me, even, even in the difficult times, even, even in the harshest of times. The message here from this passage is, don't be like those people. Don't be like those flaky Hebrews. Trust God even in the desert places, even when it doesn't make sense. Trust God even when you can't work it out, what possible solution there might be, God, God has a plan. Ultimately, of course, his death on a cross, Jesus coming to die on a cross, is the ultimate example, the ultimate thunderclap of God's gracious provision for desperately needy people. And by the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, points to this episode here out in the desert and puts, inserts Christ in it. It says, Paul saying, they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed, and that rock was Christ. The New Testament is very clear that the rock that was struck that day was, in fact, Jesus Christ. He is the one from which living waters flow for us as followers of Jesus. The undeserved provision of God uh, out through the waters of the Red Sea points to Christ. The amazingly gracious provision out in the desert with manna and quail and water from the rock points to Jesus. Jesus tells us that even in death, friends, there is hope. This is a life-changing truth for all who embrace it. You can have peace and confidence and poise in this life. If you know that you don't need to be blown this way and that by every trial that comes your way. I know it's the testimony of many of you faithful folk here who have been following Jesus for, for decades, many more decades than I've been following Jesus, that, that God is good, God is just, 
and he's gracious and he provides for you in, in ways you can't even begin to comprehend. God is patient, even with people who don't really deserve it. God is incredibly patient and gracious with flaky whinges and moaners and grumblers and accusers like me and you. Praise God. Isn't this, isn't this good news? So let's commit ourselves this week to knowing that even in the hardest of times, even in the desert times, you might be in a place of great abundance at the moment, but know that a time of, of dryness, a, a dry place, a desert place will inevitably come at some point in your life. Why don't you pray now that, that in that time, even in the dry place, that you might know that ultimately God is all we ever had to provide for us in the first place. If you know that you are in Christ, that God provides even in the desert places, even in the harshest of environments, you can have confidence and peace because you know that you don't really deserve it, but God provides what you need anyway. So next time he leads you out into a waterless encampment in your life where there doesn't seem to be any human hope, can I encourage you to continue to trust in him anyway? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? There is waters of grace for grumblers and quarrelers and accusers. There is water from the rock for undeserving people like you and I. Praise God. So when you're in the desert, can I encourage you to look to Jesus, our rock of salvation, our source of, of living water, struck, smitten in our place in order that we might live. Drink of that rock, knowing that you can survive any desert, you can survive any trial, and that you will, in fact, even survive death itself. Amen? Let's, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we lift up to you all of those dry places in our lives. We thank you for your gracious provision, even when we can't see where help might come from. We know that you are our help. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord. If we are in a desert place right now, Father, we pray that you might help us to know that you know that you are there with us and you will provide what we truly need in your time, in your way. Help us to remain steadfast. Help us to remain faithful. Help us to remain true. And Father, if we are in a time of a great abundance, if we are feeling mightily blessed in this season of life, Father, help us to give thanks, knowing that all that we have ultimately comes from you. Help us to commit now to trusting in you in those dry places, in those desert paths. Help us to know, Heavenly Father, that even death itself has been defeated in Christ. That Jesus, our rock, our source of living water, died in our place in order that we might experience true, abundant, eternal resurrection life in this life and the next. May it give us great courage, may it give us great joy, 
may, us, may give us great peace in the dry places, in the places of abundance, wherever we may find ourselves this week. In Jesus' name, amen.